What's the story behind the story? We'll find out on Dropping In. Our guests are today's original thinkers, conversations that spark new ways of seeing what's going on. We bring it all to the table. Diverse perspectives, controversy, loving, and singular voices. Magically, stories reveal the common threads that link us. Experience the joys, the fist pumps, the detours, and the hard-won truths of those who blaze the trail so that we might do the same. And now, here's your host, Diane Dewey. Welcome to Dropping In, everyone. We all seek connection. And for those of us who've been uprooted or who've moved around a lot or who can't get past the sense of COVID isolation, our guest today, Joanna Alaftiriu, will address feeling displaced, seeking affinity, learning newness, and finding a sense of home as it relates to who we are. Her book, This Way Back, chronicles her own awayness from Queens, New York, where she spent her childhood, to Cyprus, the homeland of her father and Turkish Greek mother, where she moved at age 10. It's also an elegy to her late father, whose journals she traced. If the question, where are you from, is difficult for you, Joanna's message will resonate. Welcome, Joanna. Thank you, Diane. Thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you. I hope I got those facts correct. I'm going to, in a moment, ask you to describe yourself in your own words, but I'll introduce you with the official biography. Joanna Alethiriou is the author of the essay collection, This Way Back. Her essays appear in Crab Orchard Review, Arts and Letters, The Common, Sweeter Voices Still, an LGBTQ anthology from Middle America, a contributing editor at Essay, a journal of nonfiction studies. Joanna holds a PhD in English from the University of Missouri and teaches at Christopher Newport University and the writing workshops in Greece. How lovely. So there you have um, your biography, and I wanted to share that with our listeners, but I also wanted to ask you who you are and how you would describe yourself now, Joanna. Teacher, writer, daughter, how would you describe yourself? Well, I think that I wrote the book in order, one of the reasons I needed to write the book was because I needed to answer that question, and one of the wonders of publishing it and holding it as an object in my hands has been the ability to sense that it's here, it's all in here. I was able to assert who I am, and the reason I use the verb assert, Diane, and I wonder if your listeners will feel that they've had to do this asserting of who they are rather than simply stating is because some of the identities that came up just in the the official biography that you read are contradictory. I chart through the book my coming of age and I intentionally brush stroke into essays that occur in my early adolescence, how much my Greek Orthodox Christian faith mattered to me. 
I felt that I was able to experience transcendence and connection through prayer. And Mm -hmm. as I came into a sense of sexuality, I realized that those two were contradictory. So in a way, the answer to your question is, I am a group of contradictory identities, such as Greek and American, lesbian and religious, that I needed to write my way into a sense of owning all of those contradictions. Right. And the assertion is, I think, such a an apt word that you use because, you know, you it is contradictory the way these entities exist now. There's pushback from Orthodox religions on, mm-hmm. you know, lesbian and gays. And whether that remains the eternal uh, truth or whether that's a temporary truth, we can only guess. But the thing that I think is so cool is that you've embraced both sides of these contradictions and you didn't go, you went in a non-binary direction and you decided not to have to choose Mm -hmm. between being lesbian and being um, religious and spiritual to the point where you just said, you know, it, it, I'm, if I, I can't love a God that yeah. doesn't basically love me. That journey, that arc is, is quite long in your life. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it continues with the same urgency or vibrancy mm-hmm. today, or is it evolving? That's a great question. The urgency is so much less. I feel like there were moments specifically um, in my early 30s where the meditation and the confrontation of my church's unwillingness to see me or even acknowledge that I exist um, in contradiction, different to um, many Western churches, which say we don't accept lesbian and gay people. The Orthodox Church doesn't acknowledge that there are people who fundamentally experience um, their attraction as one to the same sex. They say, you know, we all experience temptation to do something wrong. We all are jealous or we all want to maybe steal something and we don't do it. You happen to often experience a desire to be intimate with someone of the same gender, and so, and you, just like somebody who wants to steal and doesn't, you must also um, resist that temptation. So, um, so I was confronting in my early 30s a church that didn't believe I had the experience of the world that I did, um, and I wasn't mirrored by my surrounding culture, my culture told me that what I felt wasn't real, wasn't as true as I felt it to be. And um, there was, in, during my 20s, I lived in Virginia where I managed to come back to, ironically, um, doing a master's uh, in fine arts in creative writing at the University of Old Dominion. And I was sort of typecast or stereotyped as the religious Greek girl who doesn't talk about boys because she is so religious and no one could have guessed and I couldn't burst 
that facade that had been created without my intention. I just didn't talk about sexuality because I didn't really have a language for it after having grown up in this culture that didn't believe there was such a thing as a person who predominantly or exclusively, in my case, only is attracted to people of the same gender expression. So, and you can see those, the language that I'm using is a language that isn't even, is not available at all to um, people within my own church culture. And so when I moved to Missouri to do my PhD, I intent, I said, I can't let that happen again. I can't let myself get enclosed by an unintentionally produced image of myself as prudish, prissy, you know, uh, yeah, prudish, um, so religious that I don't talk about sex. I'm thinking about sex all the time. I'm attracted to all these women, but I can't say so because I don't have a language for it. So I just started saying that I was gay. And it was in my introduction to women, to people in Missouri, that I started to believe it myself. And then I had a class in... um, ethnographic writing in my second semester of my PhD with a professor of ethnography and folklore whose primary research interest was women pastors. And interestingly enough, this um, professor, Elaine Lawless, is not religious and doesn't, she is spiritual, but doesn't have a, a religious affiliation. However, she was the first person in my life outside of the um, my own church that told me, I believe you that your church is such an integral part of your life. Everybody else who I told I had this contradiction or this um, conundrum said, oh, just become Protestant, become Unitarian. You can give up that part, right? It it seems so simple. And I think in in Western churches, sometimes it does feel sort of alternate, like you can exchange. It's a part of one's identity that one can exchange or one shops around for a religion much more. But Orthodox Christianity is a little more like, I think, the Jewish faith. It was so much a part of my identity. And this was the first person that believed me. And there came a reckoning that was extremely profound. And I started thinking I started hearing in spring break that year the word never, and I imagined that if I stayed within this church, I would never be intimate or have sex or sexual encounters with anyone, and that I would live my whole life and I would die that way, Um, and that was a choice I was making um, rather than ignoring it, and it was an excruciating sort of one of those things you I thought only happened in the movies. There's a really profound encounter with a truth that was too hard to face. And then I, I made a dating profile and I started because I said, I, I think, oh, and I came up with this um, really simplistic uh, syllogism that I have in the book. Who in the end of my life will be more likely to forgive? Will I forgive my church for having deprived me of all erotic experience? Or will God forgive me for having chosen to live in my body as the body that I believe he gave me? And I decided, well, God's the one who's more likely to forgive. And, and it gives you a more authentic <laughs> life. Yeah. That. But it, it, is, it is a tortured process. I think it's so, I mean, obviously eloquently put. Um, you you also held yourself in abeyance in a certain way. You you yes. you kind of protected yourself for a long while until you could get those two words, orthodox and lesbian, 
into your same sentence about yourself. And I think that that's also, um, it's one of the miracles of the way our minds and, and psyches actually work. That, you know, until you're ready, I mean, I'm a big believer in waiting. Um, and, and in your book, you, you, you trace the markers of where you got certain signals. It wasn't just your church. I mean, this is your immediate living room, your immediate mother and father, right, who are also implicating um, this mm-hmm. sinning that is homosexuality in their mind's eye. And I thought it was lovely at the, towards the end of the book where you start to just realize that your mother just really doesn't want you to burn in hell. She's, she's mm-hmm. actually trying to help you avoid that fate, which I think, you know, that's, that's a remarkable way of coming around to her perspective and a certain kind of forgiveness for the ostracization that you must have felt, the alienation that you must have felt, and that, that tension that must have been in your relationship for such a long time. Was mm-hmm. that really, and, and, and did it also occur with your father, or was there, in, his, in your lifetime with him, was there that sense of acceptance, that dawning acknowledgement, more so? I wasn't quite sure if he really understood mm-hmm. you better. Thanks, Diane. You, you're such a um, perceptive reader. I didn't, I know that it's unclear about my father because it is unclear to me. Um, I sense that my father apprehended my sexuality, but didn't want me to say it because my father was one of those people. And I think it's clear in the book, some other readers have mentioned that they did get the sense that he was one of those people who says he doesn't care what people think, but was very invested in his image in the world. Um, And I have this sort of disappointed connection with my father, knowing that if he had lived to my coming out, he would not have liked it or perhaps wouldn't have borne it. And I'm transgressively grateful that our relationship on earth ended when it did, um, as, as obviously I'm not glad that he died at 72, but I'm at peace with that. Um, whereas my mother is still alive and I'm so glad you picked up on that way in which both of them continually implicated me in this idea of sin. Um, the experience of making art is something I'd like to bring up here because, and have our listeners think about how making art can change our relationships with people, because I didn't want to think about my mother's point of view ever. I had no interest in doing that. Um, And I just actually told my students the story of writing that um, penultimate essay because I had tried before to ask them last year to ask other students last year to write about an experience of injustice. And I expected them to by themselves intuit that in order to gain the reader's sympathy as a writer who has experienced some injustice or unfairness, they'll suggest or think about their 
the other person's point of view, but my students here at Christopher Newport are traditionally aged, so they're 18, 19, 20. They have no interest in thinking any outside their sort of self-righteous experience of outrage at their parents, which is developmentally a natural stage to be at. And so I got to tell them about this. I told them about this before I introduced the exercise, actually last week, um, and I told them I didn't want to think about my mother's perspective, but the incident that I dramatized actually happened. Um, The woman from Turkey who um, had put me up during Hurricane Harvey said to me, you know, the reason why Islamic countries try and incentivize through taxation and other means to get Christians to convert to Islam is because they believe that everybody will be better off. Um, Of course, there are political reasons too, but she says people want to convert others because they believe that that's the way the world, the world will be better and those people themselves will be saved. And your mother earnestly believes that she's willing and is willing to sacrifice her relationship with you in order to save your soul. And so it's those, that moment together with an understanding of how art works, where as artists being isolated in our own point of view and our own outrage doesn't make art that works. And I forced myself, really. I did, that's not something that I wanted to write, but I knew I couldn't publish this book without considering and offering some sense of my, reader, my mother's point of view to the reader. And it's been really effective, both as um, uh, an important cornerstone of the book, I think, and as, in turn, a pedagogical tool. You know, I think that the the making of art, it just is, um, it's not just statement making then, it's communication, right, from both yes. sides. It's a dialogue. And I think that the um, it's not just about the warm and fuzziness of compassion. It's about mm-hmm. comprehension and understanding and contextualizing so that... Um, we can actually go forward. We unbelievably already have to take a commercial break, but when we come back, I'd love to talk with you about a certain paradox that I felt, which is that classical Greek literature, not so far from Cyprus, you know, is rich with, um, with homosexual relationships um, the, the island of Lesbos is, is thought to be, you know, a haven. It is a haven, and it's thought to be mm-hmm. um, very much a part of the texture and the fabric of lesbianism as a history. And, I, I, you know, these kinds of contradictions, you know, point to, we're on, it's temporal. We're all in a continuum. This is the way it is mm-hmm. now. It wasn't always that way. Maybe it won't be again. So all the more reason, right, to urge this art making um, we're going to take a commercial break I'm sorry to leave it in the air but we'll, get, we'll give us a moment to collect our thoughts when we come back with Joanna Eletherio who wrote the book This Way Back we'll take on some of these questions and even whether This Way Back to me sounded like Born This Way <laughs> anyway don't go away we'll be right back on Dropping In 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. She Writes Press is an independent publishing company founded for women writers everywhere. Together with sister company Spark Press, serving men and women, it is both mission-driven and community-oriented. The aim is to serve writers who wish to maintain greater ownership and control of their projects while getting the highest quality editorial help possible, traditional distribution, and an in-house marketing and publicity team. In 2019, She Writes Press was named Indie Publisher of the Year. You can find out more on SheWritesPress.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to Diane at DianeDewey.com. That's Diane at DianeDewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Joanna Alethirio, author of This Way Back. It's a collection of essays that's become, for me, an instant classic. It will go on my shelf of classics. We were talking before the break about classical Greek literature and the allusions, Joanna, to cultures that were um, predominantly homosexual, accepting of it. Mm-hmm. I stumbled across this morning uh, a quote from Toni Morrison. Um, she said, as writers, we do, what we do is remember. And to remember this world is to create it. I wonder about this relationship of past and present and what might be future um, as it relates to these classical literary illusions. Wow, that's a beautiful quote, and I'll look it up and put it in my own treasury of quotations from Morrison and others. Um, yes, I'd use the very concrete image and try, I, I say it twice, I believe. I remind readers and sort of ho- hope that some will actually Google how ancient Greek statues looked before. They were actually quite garish. Um, we have the archaeological evidence suggests that the the colors were quite bright and um, almost flamboyant to current compared to current tastes. And I insist that the reason we remember the statues as white, even though we have the technology to present in museums and textbooks the way they looked originally is because of the cultural implications that the whiteness of um, the marble, the faded marble um, has for a culture that currently is built upon a certain um, affect or stance towards the world of the sense of the, cla- the, the classic, the poise of the white statue. Um, and similarly, I dramatize this moment that obviously really happened where I was this pre- uh, precocious uh, middle schooler saying, I'm a very smart kid. I've already finished, you know, all of Anne of Green Gables and all of Laura Ingalls Wilder. I'm so smart. I'm going to read my parents' books. And so I picked up 
Plato and said, yes, I'm so smart. I'm going to read Plato. And I came upon Lysis on Friendship, where the philosophers are having a symposium and arguing about what it means to be a lover of boys. And it's, it was unavoidable to me as a young person who was just starting to have, to feel the erotic pull, to have arousal when thinking about other girls' bodies and find that this was something that really happened. And it was terrifying and terrifyingly real. And the culture in the last, you know, 2,000 years, Western culture, the, the culture that the West, Northwestern European culture that appropriated um, ancient Greek culture for its own purposes and then actually gave it back to modern Greece um, as colored or decolored, actually, by um, the Germanic and French and English sensibility, um, they have totally gotten rid of most of what really happened. And I actually hoped to not only to show this principle in action in my own life, but I was also hoping that the experience of um, Greek and Greek Cypriot culture could also be a mirror for Americans. It's often easier for us to reflect, that's a little bit of a pun, um, reflect on our own country and our own experience and our own prejudices through the mirroring of another country that we have no stake in or no investment in either way. So I tell these stories and I also tell about how when the Greek Cypriots were in the majority in Cyprus, they um, horrifically oppressed the Turkish Cypriot minority. And that's totally erased from all of the textbooks of the period of the 1960s. And I found out about it later as an adult researching this book. Um, I hope that perhaps American readers can reflect on their own learning about the Native Americans, the exploration, the the um, the Revolutionary War um, has come up, and like the a lot of tensions currently in America come from different rememberings and misrememberings of really what constituted the rebellion against the British Empire and how we should continue to live in that tradition of rebellion against the empire and constituting the United States. Well, whitewashing and Puritanism Mm. certainly go hand in hand. And I love that you mention other indigenous cultures, because when I think about the title This Way Back, I feel like we need to go back to, to understand, to remember this, to to create this new world that we're going to need to have that'll be, you know, obviously more acknowledging, more inclusive, and um, more more sensitive to our environment, um, which indigenous cultures tended to be much more in tune with. Um, not to mention the sensuality, the you know the whole um, the whole dynamic and the wholeness of sexuality, which is now at this point fragmented um, and splintered off. Um, so this this reintegration process it really reminded me of the title of your book, This Way Back. Um, if you'll allow me to, I, there's a wonderful quote because we've um, you talk about this way back. Uh, as the title 
in the book, you mentioned you're not sure mm-hmm. of what you're going back to, back to homeland, or you say, or whether it just mean, or whether it just meant that I had been saddled with a restless sense that the home I have to get back is always somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I wonder. I wonder about this, the poignant universal truth that our home, our angekommen, is just the German word of homecoming, mm-hmm. that it, it might always be somewhere else, something elusive. Um, and can it be internal at the same time of going back to ourselves and to some set of values that will save us? And what do you think about all this? <laughs> I Help do me. think, Diane, I really do think that I have had the good fortune and the privilege to meditate on this, to, to, to talk to different people about it, so that I don't think I'm going to suffer the fate of my father, which was to somehow a bit tragically and a bit blindly keep changing countries and going back and forth, back and forth, thinking that if I only find the right physical location where I can fit in and belong, um, I'll get rid of, I'll quiet or calm this or even quench this sort of fire of feeling like I'm not at home. Um, And it's an at home in my body and it's an at home in my place and in my connection to other people. I think in my journey, I found that I felt most out of place and most in distress when the person I felt myself to be was at odds with what other people told me I was. And one of the times I actually started feeling a little more at home was when I left Cyprus and came back to the U.S. for my master's and connected to people over writing. And that was a way in which it was something that I could talk about openly. And when I found other writers in my MFA program, I felt like we understood each other. And as I became more articulate and more able to say and more aware of the sort of hidden crevices of my own psyche, as I went through and almost inflicted on myself the, a, a facing of my faults, my fears, the more I became aware and brought some of the things I was afraid of or, or I believed and didn't want to admit I believed or felt into awareness and became a bolder in my assertion of that identity, which is a the theme of your show, I found that other people would respond and that gave me the sense of being at home in a way that a concrete home never can. I think it's the relationships that make us feel at home. Absolutely. And a relationship to ourself and the mm-hmm. naming, you know, I think there mm. you've touched on the, the power of the words, the, the naming and getting that out creates this satisfaction of, you know, you, you talk about it quite a lot in your book, actually naming of um, trees, plants, jasmine, um, olive, carob, um, that instantly transport you to a place or an identity and that if these words are banished then our sense of self is forever ostracized and yeah. and is always in exile and that sense of exile and the sense of home really are interactive internally externally 
And I think that that um, is really the gift of this book. I think it's also one that can help us while we're in um, pandemic isolation. You know, is this isolation um, a gift? And people have questioned this. And, um, you know, there is a lot of reflection going on. And I think um, if you want to kind of add to that, read this book, This Way Back, it's such a glorious kind of revelation um, there's definitely the journey of the mind um, the, and other very real journeys. Um, you bring us a sense of place from the naming of things and from a sense of smells, the old cigarettes in the, in this, in the Cypriot hotel room. And these mm-hmm. sensory observations keep your body very close and alive. I wondered if it was difficult for you to be so alive, so vibrant at a time when you needed to be suppressing other parts of yourself. There's almost a sense of bursting out um, that comes through in this language. That's an incredibly perceptive question, Diane. I am, I'm really floored by that. I, this book took me 15 years from the other side is the first essay I wrote, and um, A Vacation in Maple was written, which you re- alluded to just now, is the very last piece that I sort of tucked in to the book at the very end of its composition. Um, I went to, after the workshop that you and I um, did in Florida together, I went to um, Provincetown in Massachusetts, and I was given an exercise um, to think about a tree. And somehow that um, meditation on trees gave me the last little nugget that I was able to sew the book up together after writing at a very consistent pace for 15 years. So if it's 270 pages, about 20 pages a year, that's not a lot because it was excruciating and I did get some pushback or even teachers of mine were like, writing is hard for everybody. Stop making such a big deal out of how hard this is for you. So it feels very validating for you to recognize that I felt both, I felt compelled and I could not write anything else that was easier, but I was wrestling with a problem, an internal sort of existential problem that I'm very grateful to have gone through, but it was more difficult than I felt was able to convey, but you as a writer yourself and as a perceptive reader really nailed it. Um, It's that embodiment. I just workshopped a new essay that I've written recently about um, teaching in a prison, and one of the problems of being incarcerated is the men that I was teaching are really have their own bodily needs sort of weaponized against them, and it's really painful to see the way, you know, going to the bathroom and needing to eat and needing to have your body safe are all these ways in which the power of the state and the power of others is leveraged against people. And one um, critique that my peers in my writer's group mentioned is, you're disembodied in this. We don't see anything of you. Meanwhile, of course, my own embodiment as a woman in a male, a men's prison was 
<laughs> an excruciating mm-hmm. fact and a real danger. And actually, I just realized one of the problems was we were told to leave all cash and our weapon, of course, because it was Texas and you have a weapon, and your cell phone in the car locked because um, they could be stolen from you and used, right, or you could be, whatever, harassed to get your... And it was pointed out, the problem was you couldn't leave your body behind, even Mm -hmm. though a woman's body was just as much currency and important as... And we were supposed to leave ballpoint pens because they could become tattoo guns. And this way in which the body and like forcing our body into our own consciousness, it was really painful for me because there was a lot of... And I, I, I tried not to medicalize or use the language of psychology, but a lot of the moments that I wrote about occur during periods of clinically diagnosable dissociation. So mm-hmm. I went back and it was therapeutic, but excruciatingly therapeutic to have to imagine myself in a physical sense, in the physical place of those really painful and terrifying moments. Um, and I'm glad that they came alive for the reader and I'm glad I wrote it because I think that integration of my psyche came about partly because I undid some of the problem of dissociation by placing my physicality into the writing along with my mind and spirit. Which is the the asset that we um, benefit mm-hmm. from, I think, the most in this. And you talk at length at the beginning, at the outset, about um, one of your idols, Melina McCoury, and she was an actress who, who famously said, you know, the personal is political. What you eat mm-hmm. is a political statement. Always it's becoming ever more true. I think it's fascinating what you just said about, um, obviously, your body is also objectified, mm-hmm. potentially weaponized. Um, and this really recalls um, this whole um, this whole idea that, you know, at one point you were also dissociated. You talk about trauma in the book and how you can't encode. And you write um, when you're going to the border of the Turkish part of um, Cyprus. Mm-hmm. The border, the buffer zone, and the green line were real to my mind, not this. Not the physical presence of my own self on this piece of the country imagined and desired, but never touched never ever touched. I drove on and emotions rose up, tears welled up. I mean, I just thought that that metaphorical allusion to the beauty, the physicality, but not being touched like there wasn't the axis going through, connecting, um, it was just fascinating. And there are moments like this throughout the book. Um, We uh, have to pause for a commercial break. there did seem to be, you know, a, a direct metaphor there and seeing the physical as metaphysical, crossing all these mm-hmm. boundaries of physical, mental, emotional. Um, it's really just makes this transportive. And as Melina McCory said, the very personal, the intimate detail becomes, becomes political. It's, it's mm-hmm. small to large and back again. We're going to take a commercial break, but um, when we come back, we're going to talk with Joanna Moore about harvesting carob in Cyprus Mm -hmm. and what it was like to go back, whether that was a homecoming, and how all of these things matter. Don't go away. We'll be right back on Dropping In. 
Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Books Forward exemplifies excellence in book marketing and promotion, representing New York Times bestsellers, national award-winning books, and books that catch fire on social media and in the digital realm. Books Forward creates ambitious campaigns with unlimited possibilities for sparking buzz while creatively cutting through the noise. Your book deserves to launch with experts who have set the bar in the industry. To learn more, visit booksforward.com or send us an email at info at booksforward.com. A JKS Communications Company. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to diane at dianedewey.com. That's diane at dianedewey.com. Now, back to Dropping In. Welcome back, everyone. We're here with Joanna Alethirio, who is the author of This Way Back. And we've come back to so many ideas. One of the ones, the visual image that um, we left us with, uh, the climbing of trees, Joanna, which you did Mm -hmm. throughout your life, and running the hills. Mm -hmm. You sat in the harbors and watched the sea, and you harvested carob in Cyprus. I really wondered about this closeness with nature and the impact on the love of God and mm. whether, you're, whether it impacts, you know, your current definition of God and even idealistically, is there a way of incorporating some um, more socially responsiveness um, into religion What's your current definition? What's your current definition of God? I'm sorry to ask you this question, but no. do you know what I'm saying? Okay. I apologize. I've had, um, right now I'm in a little bit of a sort of crisis. I haven't, so it, it, um, I, there's a moment, an unfortunate moment where my mom really hurts me with something that she said, and I actually stopped going to church that moment that was, um, three months before my 40th birthday, and now I'm 42, and I, I actually stopped going to church after going to church for 40 years, and, you know, plus my time as a fetus. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I felt like somehow something broke then, and um, I'm trying to figure it out in ways that, like that insistence that I talked about earlier as a um, in my early 30s, I... I feel somehow disappointed or disenchanted, and I'm glad that you asked this question because it's scary. It's scary, but I want to think about what's scary. Um, you're right that my m- really profound moments of connection with God and transcendence and real belief and a sense that I could pray and could connect and be seen with God were when I would run in the hills and I really felt like they were a place that was mysterious and that's not uncommon in the world too. So many, the desert fathers in the very early Christian tradition went out into nature and felt that connection and so many other 
permits and things. And I had the same experience and um, like the trees and all that. And I thought that everybody felt that way, uh, but apparently not. Um, I've realized uh, recently, but it was something very, very, it was a profound and very visceral experience that couldn't, I couldn't deny that had really happened. The sense of being connected to the whole world when I was out in nature. And I'm not a hike. I don't, I don't like to take the car to go somewhere to hike. I'm more like I'll find a pocket of nature in whatever city. And I was lucky Columbia, Missouri had lots of trails and things in Cyprus, obviously, that the population is still fairly small. And it was easy to find these spaces that just didn't have any people in them. Um, And I even have that moment where I hug a tree. And unfortunately, in... uh, in Houston, I once like sat, sat on the earth to relieve anxiety, and I was covered in fire ants. So that oh, was, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I think that um, we need to both not idealize nature, but yes, I love this idea of climate as <sighs> so. Okay. Unfortunately, something that's dominating our culture now is a instrumentalism or a utilitarian thinking of nature and even many climate conversations happen from a point of view of, okay, we need to safeguard the planet to safeguard ourselves. And it's a really a self-centered approach. But I think what I benefited from in a spiritual sense was to get out of the ego and to imagine, to understand my own smallness and to understand that all our needs are, and need is a big question in the book, our needs are actually met. And if I think, unfortunately, American consumerist culture and neoliberal understandings of human, the human psyche think of, um, think that, you know, buying stuff and, and consumerism um, can make us happy, and obviously it doesn't, and, and reducing our sense of nature as something that we want to keep safe for ourselves, but, like, looking at, at it with, utter respect and gratitude um, heals ourselves, heals our psyches, and also can save the planet in one, in one breath. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, you talk about consumerism as a protection mm-hmm. against death, that if you have yeah, a big... Yeah. If you have a big house, then nothing can happen yeah. to you. And really, that is the illusion. You know, you, you certainly um, po- poked a hole in that balloon. And um, I... I I, I love the uh, conversation about need and self-reliance in the book. Yeah. There, there's this, there's a certain time in which you you decide you'd like to be like um, the carob tree, which doesn't need much water. It doesn't need much, you know, attention, interaction. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you you experienced a, a, a service um, job when you were in, you know, in your school days. You were waitressing. I I know this well myself, of this mm-hmm. idea of, I don't need anything. I'm just going to mm-hmm. offer things to people. I, I don't need anything mm-hmm. myself. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then, but those needs actually can't be filled by superficialities. They can be filled by moments in nature of rapture and awe um, and connection. But um, it's just, it's fascinating to me the surrogates that we tried to mm-hmm. put into those into yeah. those necessary equations that 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 won't go away those questions that you know just won't 
won't be wrestled down. Um, and I, I even love that, um, you know, you, you kind of have this in the book, you know, this, the, this idea of dissonance. You're not quite Greek or you're not quite Cypriot, mm. not quite American. You're not quite fitting into any of these rubrics. But, I mean, this um, dissonance becomes part of your identity, right? It's not so much this idea that I love the nostalgic, the romanticism of nostalgia, and it, it harkens back to Toni Morrison's quote of remembering. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, your father thought, okay, we're going to go back to Cyprus so that you could, quote, learn who you mm-hmm. were. I mean, in, in light of all of your, the, the expansive that when you broke mm-hmm. yourself open and really became receptive mm-hmm. to who you were, and sometimes it was these um, dialectics, um, mm-hmm. that, that, that it really it wasn't, it wasn't any of those things that, that he <laughs> thought. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it, you know, it, was, it was something else, and you maybe couldn't have found it um, any other way. Yeah. Your, yeah, your, your comfort in your skin, your comfort in your own skin is, is very palpable um when you go back though <laughs> uh-huh. when you go back to greece for example to teach your your writing seminars yeah. in the summer do you like feel anything vibrationally from this place even now yeah yeah okay yeah and i just i had i talked to a class at emerson college um who's reading my book and a young man from whose parents are from India, said that my articulation of this visceral sense that I come from this land happened to him who grew up in Massachusetts. He went to India and he felt that sense that this is where my sort of ancestry is from. And I don't position myself on whether that is real, whether there is some understanding that our our body has or it's an illusion because, you know, power of suggestion sort of thing. But Mm -hmm. I did feel that. I did feel I'm from here. And then on top of that, one of the sort of ironies, I love that you you articulated so well, the irony of my father intending to bring us back to Cyprus so that we could see ourselves as entirely – you know, Greek Christian, probably, you know, meet a Greek man and meet one, you know, have Greek babies. Um, It broke open so that I not only didn't see myself that way, but said, yes, what it means, I I actually revolutionized what I understood Greekness to be. Um, So, um, and then, but the other, the added irony is that um, Greece is a country that I don't have a passport to in ways that I have a Cypriot passport and I have an American passport. And because I have this Cypriot accent that overpowers my the English tinge of my Greek accent, I'm identified as Cypriot in ways that I'll never be identified as Cypriot either in America or in, because Americans haven't really heard of Cyprus. And then in Cyprus, people just assume I'm British because they hear the English in my accent, and they most Cypriots have gone to emigrated to England rather than the U.S. And so it's the huge irony is that a place where I've never lived and to which I do not have a passport, um, and which none of my that my my 
parents. So I've had, or even actually my, none of my actual grandparents either, just my great-grandparents actually lived in what is now the Greek nation state, but that's where I feel like I'm identified the way I want to be. That's so interesting. Mm-hmm. You write, um, and, and really, I think it's poignant, um, you know, there are deep, deep roots that are intangible. You, you write, though, as a sort of an accumulative, accretive statement, yeah. actually wrapping up now. Um, you write, telling my family story could offer liberation from this ghost that lives inside me, a sense of exile, a sense of not belonging, a sense of being trapped and unable to flee. And I think, wow, this is just so resonant in this very in this very moment. And, you know, to resist going to binary places for mm-hmm. answers um, for the story of ourselves, I think that that's... Um, it's really, it's really a takeaway, a gift from this book, as is Marikai, the pleasure derived from attentive caring and mm-hmm. passionate labor, mm-hmm. which clearly went into this book. So thank you, mm-hmm. Joanna, for being with us. For those of you who want to get in touch with Joanna, Joanna at Joanna Essayas on Instagram and Twitter, This Way Back is sold wherever books are sold. Thanks to our engineers, Matt Widener and Aaron Keller, and to our executive producer Robert Cialuno, most of all to you, our listeners. Remember to stay safe, make the most of this quiet time, and to try to find a sense of home. Till next week, thank you for dropping in. Thank you so much for dropping in. Please join Diane Dewey again next Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you then.